0: This is the CMS Colloquium podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. I'm Henry Jenkins, the, the co-director of the Comparative Media Studies program, and it's my privilege to welcome all of you to our conversation with Juno Diaz. Um, I should note, if you hadn't picked it up, that we have the schedule here for for upcoming colloquium events, which is really one of the most spectacular set of speakers we've put together with people like Stephen Greenblatt, Robert Darton, Takishima. Uh, Hochi Anderson, uh, Lev Manovich. Uh, it's a pretty global mix of speakers. Uh, upcoming events focused on the election, as one might expect. Uh, we have some, some of the key players in that. Uh, lots, uh, and uh, next in next week we have a the myths and politics of media violence research with Lawrence Kuttner and Cheryl Olson who just finished a book, Grand Theft Childhood, The Surprising Truth About Violent Video Games and What Parents Can Do, which does not conclude what you might expect it to conclude. So I think it's gonna be a really productive and provocative conversation about the nature of video game violence. Every year, CMS chooses a book to send out to our incoming, to our grad students to read over the summer and sort of set the tone and theme for the year. And up to now, we've always used nonfiction books, uh, books like *Residual Media*, *My Own Convergence Culture*, uh, early on *Remediations*. Um, this year, we chose uh, Juno's book, uh, *Oscar Wilde*, wow, and uh, we and I think it's generated a really productive discussion already. Uh, we thought the rich, rich mix of different worlds, different vocabularies, different mythologies, high and low culture that Juno's book represents was ideal for sparking discussions within the CMS program. And we thought it was a great opportunity to emphasize the fact that we see books as media, that we see the printed page as an important part of the history of media and something we should take very seriously in a media program. Since most of you here will have read Juno's book, uh, there's very little I can say by way of a formal introduction. Juno is a colleague in the writing program. Uh, As I said in my blog earlier this week, he manages to be both a hepcat and a nerd, which is an interesting thing (laughs) to pull off at the same time. Uh, But I think for those of you who know Juno know that that's, that's certainly the truth. The novel has won the Pulitzer Prize and a whole boatload of other prizes. In fact, I stumbled on a blog this morning whose headline was simply, Juno saves some prizes for the rest of us. Um, which I think captures the sort of ex- response and excitement that has surrounded this book. So that said, I'm gonna turn the floor over to Juno and let him uh, share with us some thoughts. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Henry. Uh, yeah, we're good. Thank you, Henry. Uh, thank you, CMS. Uh, as always, um, Henry asked uh, through uh, his many minions, asked me to participate uh, in this year's colloquium, which, of course, is an interesting, it's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, if Henry asked, whatever Henry would ask me to do, you know, barring uh, any kind of delito, you know, I'd be happy to do it. <laughs> but... Uh, you know i i suddenly struck me this afternoon when i came into the room that we're actually going to do something rather uh rather um official yeah <laughs> i never realized that uh i keep forgetting how uh how thorough henry is and how incredibly uh um professional cms is so of course as an artist i Uh, I sometimes think, you know, you just show up and blab for a little while. And luckily, my unconscious uh, uh, sent me some warnings the last few days, so I prepared a little bit. And uh, we'll use that, I think, as the basis for some kind of discussion, yeah? Um, Again, I think I was asked to speak for 40 minutes, highly implausible, yeah? So, I mean, it sounds like an incredible amount of time to talk about any goddamn topic. And given what I do for a living, uh, being an artist, you find yourself, uh, to quote uh, David Lynch, I don't know if you ever saw that wonderful interview with David Lynch where people keep asking him about his work and he's like, you know, to paraphrase him, he's like, fool, if I could talk about it, I wouldn't make fucking movies. You know, (laughs) So, you know, of course, that's not necessarily the case for everyone. I think that one should never reduce uh, anyone's artistic production and the relationship to uh, sort of a critical viewing of that very artistic production just to David Lynch. But I'm often (coughs) reminded of that when I'm asked to present other than just a reading, you know, how usually the least qualified people to speak about their own work, about their work, are the people who produce it. Yeah, more often than not, we tend to sell myths of our work and uh, sort of uh, rumors of our work than an actually well-considered uh, analysis of what in the world is going on, or how this thing came to be. Yeah. So I sort of say these things as a preface, because I think it's rather important to remember that uh, anything that I say about any of the material that has to do with my, with me or my own work should be taken in no way as authoritative. Probably should be taken mostly as mendacious. Yeah. Like I would, I would just uh, assume <coughs> as a first principle that it will be inaccurate. You know. Yeah. So we can begin that way? Okay. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about the. Uh, I grab a piece of chalk. It's like, just in case anything needs to be fucking written on the board. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the things that interested me deeply uh, and what actually led me to produce uh, the novel which Henry inflicted on the poor masses. Yeah? Uh, the Brief Wonder It's Life of Oscar. Wow. Uh, you know, it's, again, there's a sort of way of thinking about a, a, a piece of art, a novel, uh, which sometimes erases the intellectual component of its production. Yeah, it's always uh, anecdotes about your family. They ask you, tell us about the Dominican Republic, you know, or how autobiographical are these characters? And these are sort of ways to kind of, you know, uh, not think about that very important, important, Uh, side of any artistic production which is not just the what we would call in an abstract way the creative or the inspired but you know the intellectual we bring an enormous amount of intellectual work to even something that might not seem uh, incredibly intellectual (coughs) yeah whether it's a painting or a a novel so what happened to me was for this novel what inspired me was an intellectual project uh, that I had been thinking about which was the intersection of what I would call the the deep history of the new world yeah and I'm just gonna draw a very bad example the Dominican Republic the Dominican Republic will s- well I would not say the Dominican Republic I'll say the island of Hispaniola will now be metonymic for the new world yeah because the project of the new world begins here yeah it will do okay it will do though if uh, anyone ever took a picture of that drawing and sent it back home to my poor xenophobic country they would be convinced that I was involved in some bizarre nationalist project to render onto Haiti more than they deserve, yeah? So, um, I belong, as you do, to a deformed society, okay? So, um, the books began with a certain project, which was this uh, intersection between what I would consider the deep history of the new world, and the deep history of the new world tends to, uh, at the most simple, if we wanna give it the most simple register, in my mind, um, there's many kind of historians and folks who do this kind of critical work around the area of the Caribbean and what we call the New World Project. It tends to be genocide, yeah? Slavery and extinction. Why I say that uh, that's the deep history of the New World because it's, again, I think... Uh, <laughs> I have bibliographies about how many scholars talk about how these are the, the components of new world history that are most marginalized, most erased, and certainly tend not to be part of the constitution of any national myth. So that even though this pro, these, sort of, uh, these deep historical activities, we could call them, in many ways gave rise to what we call our present yeah? Whether it's the president in Bangladesh or it's the president in Honduras, they're actually erased. You know, it's sort of like the, uh, the, the, uh, the sub-basement of late modern capitalism is composed of, of these sort of structures, but very few people want to think or talk about them. And what interested me was that there's no place in the Americas where you can't find artifact of these things. Yeah? The evidence thereof is strong everywhere. What struck me was that the project began in Mexico City, where Mexico City uh, and Mexico could be described in opposition to the Dominican Republic as a survivor culture. In other words, having encountered uh, these sort of (coughs) engines, these European engines, uh, some of Mexico's indigenous culture survived and adapted and became quite new where if you look at the island I'm from, the Dominican Republic, depending on who you ask, for the most part, the majority of scholars and historians agree that the extinction extinction of the indigenous people was total. And so therefore, in the Dominican Republic, you find artifacts of uh, indigenous folks everywhere. I'll never forget, my grandfather was a, uh, he had a coffee plantation, which is a funny way of saying, he had like three little acres where he grew coffee, yeah, and uh, those of you who know anything about coffee know that coffee grows beneath other trees. You know, it has to be very shadowy. It has to be very dark. It, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, it's a very weird little beast, coffee is. But one of the things that happened is that we would be on this little plantation. I mean, we call it a finca plant. I like calling it a plantation because it drives my mother crazy, you know? It so makes us sound like we actually had anything, yeah? But you would find relics. Of the Tainos everywhere. There were these things called semis, which were these tiny little triangular, we could call them fetishes, yeah? Um, and they were everywhere. My grandfather couldn't dig uh, in any spot in the land he owned, he wouldn't turn one up. Uh, in some ways, that experience had an enormous <coughs> impact on me. Uh, I was always thinking about, you know, I asked my grandfather, I was like, oh, where are all the, uh, where are all the people who built this stuff? It's like some really bad Andre Norton science fiction novel. Yeah, if you know Andre Norton, where the forerunners have left all their ruins. This ancient race of super advanced aliens have left all their ruins, but their physical pre- they're completely absent, you know? And I'll never forget my grandfather telling me, "Oh, they're all dead." Mm-hmm. And when you're 5 years old and you realize that that your the actual topos of where you live is littered with the remnants of an exterminated culture, it has an enormous impact. If you're that kind of sensitive little nerd kid that I was, yeah. And then, of course, my grandfather went on to further my education by um, showing me a pair of, uh, of I call them, I think they call them pinions, yeah, like old handcuffs, and uh, you know, old handcuffs from the 1800s. These things were made out of pig iron. If you've ever seen what pig iron looks like, yeah. And I'll never forget, he says, oh, yeah, they used to put these on us. (coughs) And, of course, the they was left as absent, but we understood that, you know, white European colonial masters, yeah, the us being anyone who happened to be remotely of color and unfortunate enough not to be a free black or a free mulatto in this place. And it suddenly struck me that there was, I was living in a haunted house that I lived in a house that had been completely abandoned. No one knew where the owners had been, though everyone knew what happened to them. No one really talked about them. It was kind of like, if anybody had seen High Plains Drifter, that movie, High Plains Drifter is a wonderful example of what I'm talking about, Yeah, where there's this kind of secret history that is the basis of the town, but nobody wants to talk about it, even though secretly at some level people know. having observed these things, or at least haven't had these things impacted on me, I immigrated to the United States. Uh, You know, the part about being an immigrant is you learn your civic lessons very well. You have to, you know, they give you a a whole raft, a battery of information about the new country that you move to. And what really struck me was that, not only in the history of the Dominican Republic that I learned, but also in the history of the United States that I was learning, the evidence on the ground, the evidence that I knew had occurred in both places was in some ways erased. Yeah, My grandfather's disturbing interventions about what had occurred, um, while again, remember, just the mentioning of a thing is often enough to uh, abjure it. In other words, with any kind of deep historical trauma, it's not enough to say, oh, there was slavery, there was extermination, and the poor Indians got rocked. In some ways, it's the same thing as like, uh, you know, paying your tithe once a year and then going on and sinning your way through life. Yeah, one of the things I discovered is that even though there would be lip service to these things every now and then, this lip service actually reinforced the silence instead of actually piercing it. So fast forward, that was the one component. The intersection, what really got me was that Everywhere I looked for evidence, because as a little kid, who the fuck wants to deal with that? What I was really interested in was figuring out how I could disprove my grandfather. Yeah, I was like a white conservative kid from somewhere. Yeah, that you tell them like slavery existed. And they're like, well, it wasn't bad. There was good masters, you know. Or you tell them people got exterminated. Not everybody. You know. And it it was often indirect. Yeah. Disease, disease. You know, I was the worst white apologist for genocide that you could ever imagine because what I wanted to do was to disprove my grandfather you know, because it would have been far easier for me to sleep if I didn't believe that the, the New World Project you know, involved these things at the most fundamental level and that there wasn't a collusion of silence, that in fact th- that there wasn't any silence whatsoever. It was that my grandfather was wrong and that these things were uh, an aberration, not a normative part of what makes us up, and what makes up our cultures. So what occurred, the next step was trying to find it. Couldn't find it anywhere, yeah? And where I did find it, it was the kind of stuff that a a kid who was seven, eight, or nine didn't have any access to. What I discovered, and it took me a while to figure this out, and I'm giving you kind of a fast-forward, truncated version of this project, the, the, the nucleus of this project, is that I discovered something that uh, is argued very strongly, a book that I think everyone needs to read, especially uh, if you're doing the kind of work that CMS is interested in. I don't know, has anyone read Victoria Nelson's The Secret Life of Puppets? Probably the most, one of the most important books uh, to come out um, about our sort of culture and the, the, the way that we, we repressed certain things yeah, But, I mean, you should read it. It's, it's tremendous. Her chapters on Lovecraft are, like, worth their weight in, like, plutonium. Yeah? So, but what ended up happening, and she makes a good argument for this, and, again, like I said, I'm fast-forwarding, is I discovered that the secret history of the New World, while it may have been invisible in public in polite, the polite discourse in which I was operating, the polite discourse being in my fourth or fifth grade class amongst my neighbors uh, on TV, it was absolutely rampant in what I would call the genres. In other words, issues of extermination, issues of slavery, issues of extinction, those preoccupations, they were everywhere in comic books, in the science fiction books I was reading, and in the fantasy books I was coming up with. And that's what Nelson, in some way, argues. Nelson argues that the, what is, in some ways, fundamental but difficult, of course, for us to deal with, the culture tends to deposit <coughs> in our most marginal narratives. So another way of saying that, if you want to understand a culture, you never read its central texts. You read its marginalia. You read its texts that they say are, oh, this is the garbage. Yeah, which is exactly what's happened in Victorian studies, right? Victorian studies is almost all predicated on what, during the Victorian period, was considered trash narratives. Yeah, it's at the periphery that you find, of course, the heart of things. And what really got me thinking was that I was seeing things like in Lord of the Rings, yeah, the issues of uh, what, of like dictatorship, of authority, I was seeing in Dune, the idea of uh, a multi-generational breeding experiment, which sounded very familiar to me. Anyone who knows anything about chattel slavery and knows for hundreds of years, uh, people of African descent were, were bred in the new world. But in almost no you know, realistic works of fiction, despite the fact that this was the most basic part of people of African descent's lives in the new world, you don't find evidence of this in most realistic fiction. Oh, I'm so sorry. Nobody's actually breeding anybody. You know, you don't have any updike where they're talking about breeding human beings. But it's all over science fiction. It's all over. Dune is just a, a clear example of a kind of a benevolent look on a breeding experiment, yeah? But it's all over the place, yeah? And so I give this to you as a way of starting. Let me turn this thing off. Actually, I see what dumbass called. Yep, figures. (laughs) So, this is kind of a a clunky and certainly a broad stroke way of talking about what happened uh, for this book, is that I realized that if I really wanted to think about these issues or um, if I really wanted to sort of use the tools or use the, the spaces or use the narratives or use the strategies that have even though they've done it unconsciously and directly that have struggled and wrestled with many of the issues that I was interested in what I keep calling the deep history or the secret history of the new world I would in some way have to figure out how to deploy genre not only just the strategies and the structures but also the writers, the books, the works themselves yeah? as a way not only to code and to signal, but to sort of give uh, a, a sense of, of what the project was. Yeah? So, that's sort of uh, what I began with. Now, I'm sure you're familiar, and if you're not, it's probably just by accident. Yeah, You're familiar, well, hold on, before we talk about our dear Franco-Bulgarian friend, yeah? uh, I wanted to say this. How many people here have read The Heart of Darkness? Yeah? Everybody? The Heart of Darkness, if you haven't read it, get on the ball. The Heart of Darkness is very, very interesting because in some ways it, uh, it lit the way for what I was thinking about. Now, do you familiar with Heart of Darkness? Enough to talk about it. What is the framing device of Heart of Darkness? What is the framing story? What's the story we first encounter? Is that a answer?
2: The, the gentleman on the ship at the beginning of the story, is
1: that what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, exactly. Do you know what that what genre that is? The framing story, the gentleman on the ship, Marlow and his little rich pals are sitting around. Do you guys know what genre that is? Sailor mm? tale? Mm, sailor tale? No. Travel uh? story? Say again. Travel? No travel, no. It's actually a genre that's gone out of uh, currency, but it was an incredibly common genre form. Huh? Okay. No, not diary, it's called the club story. Have you ever heard of this? A very familiar, popular genre, no longer that popular, where folks are like, you know, we're at the Hunter's Club. Did I ever tell you about the Sasquatch I shot? You know, and suddenly we, we float back to the Sasquatch time. The club story was incredibly popular. I mean, there are tens of thousands of club stories written very little work is done on them. And in fact, this is one of the strange things about Heart of Darkness, is that it, it actually marks a historical genre that ends up going extinct. Yeah? So we have the opening, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it, it guided me in a tremendous way. Marlow does what? Who's our protagonist who opens the story, and what is the whole thing he does? If we could describe what he does throughout the book in one sentence, what does he do? Don't worry. You can't go be wronger than this. <laughs> Someone, Madame. He describes what yeah, but he goes on a trip, right? He sees a. Don't you see? He goes. He sees a little blank map of, of the the blank places in the world, which we know to understand to be Africa. Yeah, and he remember. He thinks I've always wanted. I read all those children's book, <laughs> the young adult adventures, and he wanted to participate in those adventures. Yeah, and so he signs up, and his family is like. His aunt's the one who gets him the job, and his aunt is like, you're on your way to a big adventure. What's fascinating is if you think of it at the level of genre, what happens to Marlowe is Marlowe starts out in the realistic world, in the club story, sitting around talking. Yeah, He's like, oh, hello, gentlemen. This guy owns this, this guy owns that. If we think of that, it's just the opening box of the story. He's in like the real world. And then for the majority of the story, we could describe this as an adventure story. We can describe this as a sailing story. Yeah, we can describe this in part as a lost world story. He actually becomes, he involves himself in genre with a capital G. You know, he goes to this uh, foreign exotic world to has these all these adventures, um, you know, meets the, the savage people. Yeah, the fallen European. And then something interesting happens. At the end of the book, he comes back to what we would describe as the real world. And what does he come back with? He comes back, his little excursion into genre, if you want to think of it in some ways as a parable, his excursion into genre, he actually returns with knowledge of the real world. He's walking around the city. He's walking around uh, Belgium. Yeah. And he's in the what he describes as a sepulchral city. And he can't stand to look at anybody in this real world. He hates them. He's like they're absolute morons. I've seen the face of the real world. And these people are living in a city made of bone. And they're stupid. They don't understand. And he can't actually communicate with the people in the real world because nobody really wants to <coughs> give any credence to the genre the way no one who suddenly holds up an issue of Jack Kirby's New Gods and says no really this is the history of America you'll be laughed at and in some ways it's the same thing that happens to Marlowe is that Marlowe goes into this genre form discovers at the heart of it what is the engine that moves it which is genocide returns with news of this to the real world but people are like you're crazy and in some ways, that story, that observation drove me that by going into the genre, you could be a Marlowe. You could come back with information and that this information would actually make the, the realistic world that doesn't believe that this information is valuable, it can make it very clear. Okay? So what ended up happening was that I, I wrote this book, which was this intersection. I wanted to use genre. I used all sorts of... Various genres, and I just want to describe quickly what I did, what sort of what I would call the 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 structure, the sort of nerd structure of this book. Yeah, the one thing that I wanted was I wanted a book that was a shapeshifter. There is a a mythological folklore creature in the Dominican Republic called the baca. Depending on who you say it, it's with a C or a K. Yeah, depending on who you speak to, a baca is a creature who takes on any shape except no one knows what its original shape is. You only encounter it in the shape that it's adopted. But what's kind of interesting about the tale is that no matter who you ask, I always bother my grandparents, I'm like, what its original shape? They're like, actually, we don't know. And it's fascinating, yeah? And so I wanted a book that was a baka, that was a shape shifter. And so what I wanted to happen in the book was that depending on the reader, the book would take on a different shape. And so this is where this Todorov thing came up. Uh, Have you guys read this, the book The Fantastic? Very sad. (laughs) Come, this along with, yes, madame? Very well done. Yeah, come on, guys. This along with Tolkien's on fairy stories are some of the bedrocks of talking about genre in problematic (laughs) ways, of course. Uh, Todorov, I never pronounce Franco-Bulgarian names well, Todorov had this kind of fascinating idea, which I will reduce on the fantastic. That in a story, when you encounter something that could be described as the fantastic, which means that it doesn't subscribe to the normal rules of the world, yeah? there's two choices. The fantastic can lead to this. So let's say you see a guy floating. You know that human beings can't float. That's the instance of the fantastic. Now, there's two fucking options, yeah? Either it's you discover that your friend had a string (laughs) and was hanging from it, and that means the story suddenly becomes a story of the uncanny, which is that while it might seem that's the uncanny, guys, is the genre of (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Yeah? (laughs) Scooby-Doo is the entire, It's the practice, oh my god, sea monsters. Old Mr. Wilson, (laughs) yeah? Now, let's just realize, now let's go one step further. Let's find out, we suddenly find out that it's actually not a string that the motherfucker is floating. (laughs) Suddenly the story becomes a story of the Marvelous. Now, Todorov doesn't go on to break the Marvelous down into its components. It could be, I am a psychic Superman and I have been bred for 40,000 years, and my psychic powers are enormous, and therefore I can float, which would lead it to the genre of science fiction. Yeah? Or it could be, I'm an elf prince who was given a cloak of flying. <laughs> and suddenly the, marvis, the marvelous breaks itself into what we would call the fantasy genre. It could be, of course, you know, uh, horror. yeah. I'm possessed by the Wendigo. And little did you know that your house was built on an old refueling station of the Hudson Bay Company,
3: where I ate
1: 400 Europeans. Yeah, and suddenly, suddenly it becomes horror. Now, what I wanted to do in this novel was to present to the reader instances of the fantastic, that despite what the narrator was saying, that they would have to choose whether these were issues of the uncanny or of the marvelous. And in some ways, what occurs in the novel really allows people to fall into the little traps that they want to. What I found was interesting is how many people would encounter the fantastic in this book and thought it was magic realism. Because that's what people are predisposed to see. They're like, oh, he has a Z in his last name? He came from somewhere hot? It's gotta be that. Yeah. Where there's multiple explanations of what the hell's going on with the issues of the fantastic here? In fact, the book makes an incredibly strong argument for something else that's going on, that it's not magic realism, that it's not spiritual. The book is actually making a very strong argument and its subtext about what the hell's going on. So that was one structure that I wanted this book to kind of be, again, like a shapeshifter using Todorov's idea. Because I just thought that like, present this, let everyone fall for it. (laughs) Have your own explanation in the footnotes. No one pays a fucking attention to footnotes, you know, and have at it. And again, people think that if you mention Dune, you're mentioning it because we so, despite the fact that even we have a lot of nerds around us, even the nerds around (laughs) us don't want to lend any authority to Dune. They would rather lend authority to a footnote about Dominican history than lend authority to Dune, which is exactly the same problem that Marlowe encounters. Marlow comes back with this big old whopping sailor story, and who the fuck wants to lend authority to that? You know, his spe- his listeners are credulous, and I think it's the same thing. Uh, there's a reason there's so much coded science fiction and fantasy and horror, yeah, and it's not just bells and whistles. <coughs> so, that was one of the things that was happening. And then, of course, with a novel, you want to sort of, you guys, a novel, of course, as you know is supposed to be kind of a a metaphor for the world. And so therefore, it has to be so layered that a bunch of different readings can take place simultaneously, and none of them be wrong and none of them be right. And in my mind, I organized the book amongst these three kind of sets of genre codes. Uh, You know, first of all, is there any questions so far before I, I switch gears? Is that all right, or should I just keep going? What do you guys normally do?
0: Whichever.
1: Which would be more useful, young people? <laughs> mm. Ah, the silence. So look, what happened was, because I was trying to make these arguments about the fantastic, what was happening in the fantastic in this new world, yeah, I didn't think it was just enough to be like mentioning Dune and mentioning uh, uh, you know, an Andre Norton novel. I felt like the, the actual novel structure had to work in these ways. So I did these three things. Has, does anybody here read uh, Rick Moody's novel, The Ice Storm? Hands? That to be hands? Come on, you guys. <sighs> I know. Leave your names while you leave. I'm going to talk to the dean. How this, how this fucking happened is beyond me. So listen, the reason The Ice Storm is interesting is besides being one of the best written novels uh, in the last 30 years, it's a novel where the characters are divided into the Fantastic Four. There's four characters, and Rick Moody makes each character a different member of the Fantastic Four. <coughs> I found that to be awesome, and so I wanted to steal that. Yeah, so I went one step further. I'm like, thank you, Rick. And I said, you know what? I'm going to structure this novel uh, along an ice storm kind of route. And what I did was I broke up all the characters and made him the Fantastic Four. For those of you who've read the novel, Abelard is the grandfather. Which of the Fantastic Four is he? The husband, the dad, the patriarch. Come on, what's his name? Reed Richards. Yeah, he's Mr. Fantastic. He's Reed Richards. First of all, he's like a rubber man. He'll do anything, bend any way he wants to go to fit into the society and avoid trouble. He's the super genius, yeah? So I had the father as Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. I had Oscar as... Come on. The thing. The thing. He's this big shape, ugly, tormented by his body. And he's also incredibly strong. (laughs) But his strength is in his, like, faith and his ability to believe that certain things, Yeah. Then we had Lola. Lola? Come, guys. And it's just funny because if you read it now, you end up seeing all the lines where the characters are described in the terms, in these terms. Lola, right, was the human torch. She's described as always burning. Yeah? She's like always burning. And then Belicia, the mother, is before the feminist update, the invisible girl. She's described as the invisible girl because she's simultaneously uh, invisible, erased in her family but she also generates these force fields. She's impenetrable, whether it's to her family trying to get her stories or because of her incredible toughness. Now there's one other character missing. Who's the other main character in this? The narrator. Who's the narrator? Mm? Yeah, but who is he? This is where you actually have to know nerd shit to figure it out. <laughs> and again, but that's why I thought it was very, very important because I, th- I thought they're like, oh my God, people are going to read this book and prioritize the history components, and they're not going to look at the the most clear codes that are guiding the reader to think about how you should be reading this fucking book. And so, who's Junior? He claims that he's the watcher, right? Which in the Fantastic Four is the kind of benevolent person who observes but doesn't interfere. Yeah? He claims he's. And you know, it's the guy with a big head. Yeah? He claims he's Wattu the watcher. But who kind of could he be as well? Stanley. Oof. <laughs> Not yet. Union needs more money and, and much more self absorption. Come. Who could it be? Which, again, if those of you who knew the actual, the, the cosmology of the Fantastic Four, Junior does what throughout the novel? He takes on the shape, the character, and the personality of each of the Fantastic Four. So he is, therefore, Super-Skrull? the Super Scroll. And the Super Scroll is a hero or a villain. Hmm? He's a villain. And one of the things that's so interesting is that people often read Junior's act in the books as this act of contrition, (laughs) even though there's a tremendous amount that is disturbing about Junior's recounting this family story. We actually never meet the family. They all come filtered through Junior. And the greatest fear of this novel at its heart is the fear of a dictatorship of what happened in the New World, of what happened in the Dominican Republic, where only one person speaks. And why I think that this is important is that I feel like without that kind of nerd code, you begin to fail to see what the book is arguing. That Junior is a far more disturbing character than he would let on with this sort of, oh, woe is me, I'm really contrite even though every time he's given a chance, he has betrayed these characters. So why wouldn't he betray them in the retelling? That's up in the air. The second code yeah, that I was really obsessed with uh, in this, and again, all of these things I started with before I began to write the book. It was like these were the intellectual sort of, uh, the intellectual structure that guided the shaping of the book. Because I thought, aha, if I do this, you know, uh, I will prove to the world that, you know, nerd codes can explain, if not the new world, at least this text, of course, since not even the nerds really wanted to decode the nerd text, so I got fucked, you know. <laughs> you know? But it happens, man. I think as an artist you try because failing is really fun. Yeah? The other thing that I was interested in, yeah, and again, why you pick a number of these is because you want to beyond just the structures that you're going to create out of your unconsciousness, the sort of patterns that are going to come up outside of your control, which make a novel interesting and dense, you want to kind of set up a couple of them just from the get to sort of confuse people and start arguments up, yeah? And you never know what will happen with them, yeah? For the grad students. The second set was, (laughs) the second novel which really interested me to guide this was Dune. Dune, of course, was interested to me, interesting to me as some of the things I've said, this idea of a long-term breeding experiment, which in Dune was for the production of a messiah, yeah? But of course, uh, in, um, in the New World, they were breeding humans for labor. And every now and then, in different places, there was a scrim of, uh, of spiritual concern that we're bringing these people into the light of Yeah? Into the light of God and religion. And why Dune interested me was that. And I thought, what is the messiah? Does anybody know anything about Dune? Uh, (laughs) How do you know that you are the Kwisatz Hatteratch in Dune? What is the proof? Because you're a man who's able to
4: see into the the place where men can't see. Like with your mind, psychically, you're able to see into women's
1: space. Yes. You're, the, the proof of the Kwisatz Hatteratch is this, is that psychically there's two spaces, the creator and the destroyer, if you remember this from the novel. It's kind of nonsense, but it worked for this book, yeah? (laughs) Basically there was men's stories and women's stories. Yeah? And the women could only look, the women who were partially on the road to messiah could only look into women's stories, but they were terrified to look into men's stories. Thank you, Frank, highly doubtful. It's the reverse. It's the reverse that we know is true, right? It's like, for real, we know the difficulty that men have into looking into women's stories. It's like that Bechdel rule. Yeah. You know, what does the Bechdel test tell us?
4: Uh, that there are so few movies where you have two women actually talking to each other about something that isn't men that it's almost
1: negligible. I yeah. Yeah. They said, run a test on any of your books or movies that you've written or write or you're. In, or enjoy. Are there at least two women characters? Do they speak? And do they speak about anything other than men? And it's like nothing. And so anyway, I always think the Bechdel test, (laughs) the reality of the world is the exact opposite, that men have great fear and terror of looking into women's stories. But of course, this is a boy writing it, so it's the women who are terrified of men's stories, though women have spent the last couple thousand years, at least, in the Neolithic project, dealing with men's stories all the time. You know, so it seems like a strange argument to make, but hey, male fantasies, fuck it, you know? <laughs> the Messiah is able to look into both the male and the female spaces, yeah? And I was thinking that every member of this family was gonna be a, a uh, the group that's breeding people, that's breeding for the Messiah, has a bunch of near misses, if you remember. People that almost make it to the Messiah the Count Fenris characters, which is what Oscar calls Junior in the novel. In the last letter, Oscar goes, uh, he calls his sister a Benny Generous Deseret Witch, which is the organization that's breeding the Messiah, and he calls Junior uh, Count Fenris, which is the failed Messiah, who almost makes it, but can't. And so in some ways, I was really interested in this idea because I think that a Kwisatz Hatterach is the only person who can tell both sides of the stories. He can look into the male stories in the book and can look into the female stories in the book. Yeah? And can do so in a very believable way. And I thought that was always a very interesting claim of Dune, that one one reaches a certain kind of apotheosis by your ability to deal with these two kinds of narratives. Yeah? And so the unspoken character at the heart of both books is the I mean the the two unspoken characters at the heart of the book for me were the Quisette Hatterache and the Super Scroll. You know the argument is is Junior a Super Scroll or is he the Cuisat Hatterache? Has he finally achieved the thing that um, wasn't able to be achieved in this family's attempt to understand the narrative of their lives and to understand what this curse is? Because the family is afflicted by this historical curse, and their attempts to deal with it always fail and one of the arguments that I was trying to make using Dune heavily referenced throughout the book was that there can be no starting point in dealing with this curse, this Fuku, this new world curse without achieving the state of a Kwisatz Haderach, being able to not only speak of women's, men's stories but also of women's stories simultaneously. It's not enough to do one or the other. If you do one you see, you missed the entire picture. You've got to see them both. And so those were, uh, again, those were kind of... You know what, I'm gonna leave it there. Yeah, and let's just talk a little bit. Because it's kind of, again, uh, this is not what I do for a living. Yeah, I don't, I really don't do this. I don't lecture, I don't think at this kind of critical level, yeah. And, not, and it's not even that critical. I mean, any of my uh, half-stoned grad students can put together an argument more coherent and penetrating than this. So I think we'll leave it here just for the moment. Let's get some conversation, at least some talking, and see what we can do. So besides being
5: into you know, geekdom, <laughs> and being from a warm place and
1: having a Z in your name, did you go through a whole phase where you had to like go through the whole magic realist canon and dismiss it wholesale and then move on to what
5: you're describing here?
1: No, I never had any magic realism. anything. I learned magic realism after I started writing. <coughs> Guys, there's a lot of books to read, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah, and like elite white Latin American writers for how much they're beloved here. They were really were pulling me. I know it's <laughs> fucked up, but I wasn't really getting down, you know, <laughs> which is kind of screwy. But yeah, no, no, I did not.
5: Right. Well, no, I asked because it's like, what it, it magic realism has become like surrealism? You know, I was just having this conversation with someone the other day. What, what, what is it? It gets bantered around a lot. Yeah. You know, and um, one feels almost like you have to go through a pass trying to get it. Don't get it, what it is.
1: Well, I think part of the problem is like categorical confusion. Magical realism is not a fucking genre, it is a narrative strategy. Like, we start there and then everybody can start talking about what the fuck it means. But most people are acting like it's some sort of genre. There is no evidence of that. But there is deep evidence that it is a narrative strategy. So there's a lot of confusion. You, people act like it's a genre. So if you in here is the, the uh, possessed
4: Hatterach, does that make Oscar Wilde wow say Alley of the
1: Night? <laughs> Such a good question. I wasn't <laughs> <Just> necessarily, <laughs> 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 yeah.
2: Sort of, he's sort of terrible, you
1: know, yeah. sort of the No, but actually I wasn't thinking so much of those one to one correspondence, <laughs> but more what the possibility of those correspondences would lead. Mm-hmm. Because in fact, I don't, I actually would argue that the person puts the puts the story together at the end the person who puts together the book at the end is the reader, not Junior. Junior makes it very clear that he he can't finish it. You know, Junior says, "I can't do this. I'm putting the information aside and waiting for the next person who can assemble it." And of course, the person who assembles it, it is a reader. Yeah. You put on the
5: board some very heavy themes: genocide, slavery, and extinction. And I'm wondering this is a teaching novel with a a message to try to change society or if if your characters are, uh, what what is the intersection of a moral center
1: between one and power? Yeah, no, but I, I wouldn't describe the book as didactic. It hides itself too much. You know, like a typical piece of art, it's much more interested in pretending it's nothing at all, you know? Um, the, the other thing is, is that I, I would, I would argue that I'm not so interested about discussing these terms because of, uh, I don't think about it that I'm trying to produce empathy out of anyone. For me, it's just that you can't live as, like, an actual human being in the new world if you're walking around with absolutely no history, or if your history you know, I guess the thing is, who would you rather be? The book is sort of, I think at its deepest level, the book is arguing, who would you rather be? Marlowe, who knows what the fuck happens and nobody listens to him, and he's going crazy because no one cares in the large society. Who would you rather be the people wandering around the sepulchral city with their heads fucking blown off? So goddamn stupid, they don't even know, you know, the amount of violence and horror that it's taken to bring them the little fine paper they write notes to each other on. And I think the real question is, um, what is the role? What is our role? What are we, you know, what are we supposed to do with these fucking brains of ours? What is our job to live in a society that's so atomized and where so much of the, the deeper structures are hidden? You know, what are we supposed to do with this colossal privilege of those of us who get to travel and get to know? For the most part, most of the privilege of traveling and getting to know that you see in Heart of Darkness, which I'm just using as a, as a heuristic text, is that most of these people go out into the world, see things and learn things, and then come back and maintain the code of silence. And I guess the argument for me was that I wasn't gonna be like, there's genocide, slavery, and extinction. Everybody fucking knows that, even if nobody fucking cares, you know? The real issue is, What happens to people who are actually interested in taking that voyage and discovering how fundamental this is into what we call our world? You know.
4: I have a question. Um, If that was pretty much the structure of the book, why did you pick the modern history of the Dominican Republic? Why Trujillo? Why Balaguer? Why make a specific statement about the blank page that Balaguer left empty in this book? And why relay that to your
3: book? Why leave that empty page so the reader can make an assumption if this was
1: the base of the book, if this was the structure, yeah, or some sort of idea to it? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. Uh, and I think that, again, you're probably your questions will be more useful in revealing uh, the, the, the actual logic behind my arguments than anything I've said. It's because it doesn't matter what I use. In other words, I used the contemporary Dominican Republic, but I could have been like Faulkner, whose obsessions were similar, and I could have used 1920s, you know, the South. It's that no matter what the fuck you plug in from the new world, yeah, you could plug it any time and any place, and you just have to set the codes right, and these issues are there waiting. They're just there. (laughs) Balaguer and Trujillo were so easy, you know, but I could use Leonel. I mean, I was the the most current president. I mean, I was in Santo Domingo uh, chilling just three days ago, which probably has something to do with my, like, you know, madness. But it's like, and in the middle of the night, we're out at a club, and what do I see? But, you know, these huge military trucks rounding up Haitians, just loading them up, just picking up uh, Haitian immigrants and people who might be Haitian, and just piling them up in the trucks. And people are there eating fucking hamburgers and hot dogs like nothing is fucking happening. People are coming out of clubs and they're just like, they don't see. They don't want to see. And so I just think that the, 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 these deep structures are present in almost all of our post-colonial relationships. And they're easy just to plug. You know, and I have a special hatred for Balaguer, so I thought I would <laughs> signal him. Yeah. Yeah.
6: Mm. Um, diaspora and I was wondering if that sort of serves a deeper role in the book as you see it or if it was sort of more of a almost a distraction or a masking for those things as something that does get talked about a lot but as the motivations for which don't get talked about
1: as much No, part of it again is that guys because these books like novels are kind of rhizomatic right (laughs) It's like it won't work if you just get marching instructions from one set of code. In the end, you're just like working from multiple marching instructions. You're trying to make it all work together. So part of the thing of a diaspora was that I was a member of a diaspora. My community is, so I was really interested in that. But it's also useful because diaspora makes really explicit how these kind of illusions of national borders work. Yeah, The United States likes to think the Dominican Republic and the Caribbean have nothing to do with it. You know, it's like, Santo Domingo has nothing to do with the U.S. Okay, we occupied them three times. You know what I mean? Fuck it. But <laughs> that wasn't me.
3: <laughs>
1: you know, and I felt like the great thing that uh, the diasporas narrativize, you know, that they narrativize, that they somatize, that they embody in some ways, is this ridiculous porousness of not only nations but of national myths and how the new world is no longer contained by these kind of simple boundaries. yeah? The Foucault isn't a Dominican phenomenon by any stretch of the imaginations. And that was part of what I was thinking about. You know? But again, it's like I said, it, it's, it's difficult as an author. Because again, you're, you're receiving so many different marching instructions. And you create this sort of intellectual project because you want people who are smarter than you who read the book many more times than you to make arguments that you could possibly not see.
6: (coughs) And um, my other question was, Henry had passed out to all the grad students a list of all, or maybe not even comprehensive, as many sort of nerd references that he Mm. could pick out on first glance. And it took all of us, (laughs) multiple pastors, to maybe get like 60% of them, Mm. (laughs) plus like having to look up Anyway, um, so I was wondering what sort of the research process was and how you decided to incorporate this or if there was one or if you're just like such a nerd superior.
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly, homo nerd is superior. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Said so the question requires no answer. Yeah. <laughs> but again, this, and this is for those of you who have done creative work or have done the kind of intellectual work that is so intense and so demanding that it pushes you into what they call that higher order space. You know when like athletes talk about the zone? Anyone who does intellectual creative work knows all about that. You know you cannot make the connections necessary to write fiction that will interest anyone unless you push yourself into a higher order space. And what's fascinating about that is that you begin to pull out of your unconscious enormous amounts of information that you otherwise have no access to. So of course there was plenty of research. Yeah? I mean, I was on eBay. It was crazy. I was on eBay ordering like all role-playing games published between 1980 and 1989. It was insane. I was like in bidding wars with this one jerk from fucking <laughs> Indianapolis. No, for real, like, for weeks, me and this guy were going after the sky realms of Jerun. We were like, you know, hacking and hacking. And so there was research, but I think what was more interesting was that I would continually force myself into that higher order space that allowed me to begin to make these connections and allowed you to, like, play. Because research is easy. (coughs) Guys, research is easy. And writing things down in the right place that your dissertation or your paper requires is easy. Taking the material that you now have in front of you and playing with it, like actual play, sacred play, is incredibly difficult. And part of why it took the, me so long is not just that I'm lazy, is that it's not everyone who can sustain that state for longer than a day or two. So I would keep having to catch this fucking wave because I would have to play with an enormous amount of material. You know.
4: Um, we when we w- looked over that list of uh, 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 citations or you know things in the novel, um, and after listening to this, I wondered if you're familiar with *Tigana* by Guy Gavriel Kay. I can't imagine. Of course. Yeah, and I was gonna say, I had, is, it, is there a reference in here? Because it seems like that's exactly what you're talking about here. Like that novel is like the, the genre version of, of what you're yeah. talking about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, *Tigana* is the great post-colonial novel written by a white boy. <coughs> it's you know, and he's not even like Australian and Irish. No yeah yeah. yeah, no, I, I, there's a bunch of stuff I didn't get to again, yeah. you end up cutting so many chapters. The thing is is, guys, this stuff is that and this is what's so hard, that it, it is at all coherent, has nothing to do with your talent or with your skill. It has to do with that, for God's sake, my, uh, my unconscious went to bat for me. Because I can pretend that, oh, God I had this all under control. Look at this shit. You know, you throw all the cannonballs in the air and you hope to God that that unconscious shows the fuck up. You know, and so Tagana was mentioned in the chapter with the, there was a chapter that I cut out with the rocking chair. I had this chapter about, you know, John F. Kennedy's rocking chair, because of his bad back, was made in the Dominican Republic. It was a gift from the Dominican people to him. So I had a chapter where the rocking chair would possess John F. Kennedy every time he got on. You know? And make him pro Dominican. And then he would get he would get off the rocking chair and he would become anti Dominican. Which is like which was my way of explaining why he like had these in his letters he would veer from I'm support the Dominican people to they are monkeys. You know? So a lot of stuff got cut. So my question is
4: actually about um, moving back to genre and the Caribbean specifically. Mm. Work in Caribbean literature about the possibility of thinking of other writers as moving in in, in realms of science fiction. There's just been huge resistance and um, more of a desire to describe to or to to label things that I would say are moving towards science fiction as myth okay. or fable.
1: Um, <laughs> they're having the todoroff problem, yeah. <laughs> you know. They're they're ascribing to a, an act of the fantastic what they want to see.
4: What kinds of limitations that has for this field? If we, um, if we're not able to see how genre can work in the Caribbean, what that means for you know the the limitations basically that that places on this field, which is still you know in the midst of trying to, to grow and,
1: no, I think that's a, that's a really important question. I mean, look, there's there's these kind of epistemic or even deeper like ontological limitations to this question, these ideas. Because if you just go to the bookstore and grab a hundred, the most the hundred, the last hundred first novels by American writers, just go go to the bookstore and say just get them and line them the fuck up. The majority of them, because they're literary fiction for the most part, let's just just stick with literary fiction because that's what we're talking about, where where the, the, the laws of realism are like tyrannical. If you line up 100 novels of literary fiction, what you suddenly discover is that there is a flaw in the lens, that the eye of these books is being misdirected away from certain central issues. So why I say this is if you line up all 100, right, just line them up just put them down here and ask yourself how many of these books are interested in dictatorship how many of these books are interested in slavery how many of these books are interested in extermination how many of these books are interested in like this kind of fucked up situation that we discovered ourselves when we found ourselves in late modern capital with these kind of Extreme Blade Runner esque differences between people who eat a bean a day versus motherfuckers who are like, yo, come to my jet. You know, you look at these books and you realize that realism as a strategy deforms the eye, it keeps the eye of the person in that moment of Marlowe sitting in the boat. Now, line up the last 200 comic books published. Just go to a Million Year Picnic and say, give me everything that's been published. Give me the whole fucking thing for this week and last week. And then ask yourself, how many of these books are engaged in these same issues? And it's extraordinary. You would think that you're dealing with two entirely different worlds. Literary fiction has no interest in these things. It's in some ways still enslaved to the polite discourse, the discourse of respectability, where you're not supposed to suddenly say, You know, poor Obama can't mention MLK's name during his own speech because the discourse of respectability, a black man can't do it. He can't fucking do it. He got every other one of the white boys to do it, but he can't do it. Yeah, and the discourse of respectability is enormous, yet in in forms that no one cares about, where people are like, oh, this is just ridiculous, all those preoccupations and those anxieties are rampant. I don't think you can go through a comic book without finding it dealing with issues of genocide, slavery, extinction, authority, people owning each other, people braiding each other, you know. It's bananas. And I always joke around. I was like, it sometimes feels like literary fiction is being written by like three of the whitest, whitest dudes in Maine. They're like, all of them. They're all generating it, whether they're African American, Latino, Asian American, they're just there. They're like, okay, we have to be Asian today. No. You know? And the comic books are written and like genre are written like by five female dreads. You know? For real, off the coast of Anguilla. And they're just secretly saying, I'm Grant Morrison. You know? That's how kind of spooky the difference in the preoccupations. And it speaks a lot to how we as scholars have been deformed by the culture of respectability, how our how the imperial gaze has misdirected our eye away from where this stuff is really active and vibrant. And I think a lot of the scholars, look, I'll never forget being at Syracuse University and mentioning Octavia Butler's name at a gathering of all the African diasporic scholars and they were like, anyway, (laughs) let's talk about something real. (laughs) Um,
2: I I think your work is a a work of art, but I want to ask a cynical
1: question. Please be cynical, sir.
2: The same rapacious hunger of the West that led, you know, the Belgians into the Belgian Congo mm. is now leading the, the leaders and the critics, the, the champions of Western literature, into the post-colonial, post-colonial literature of, you know, Chebe Rushdie and now and now yourself. And that, you know, that this isn't why I love this, seeing this. But you know, in many ways, isn't that really why your book is being so celebrated in many ways? Through this new trash talking, you know, person of color with a new story. I, I just wanted to hear your, your thoughts on that just,
1: be, just, be, just, be, just but shape be. the question better so I can answer it yeah. No, no, I didn't mean that yeah. guys Are you the of the day? Yeah. Sure, Sure, exactly. but I want to hear him say it but thank you sir. <laughs>
3: because,
2: I, because I mean I just wonder what it must feel like to be because I, I loved your novel on a lot of levels and I didn't even see these levels but I just wonder you know I just I'm a high school literature teacher and and I wonder I wonder how you might is it frustrating for you. To, to you said, sorry, I just I, I'm just deeply moved by seeing you and you talk to this man about kind of speaking truth to power and inevitably the truth that you're speaking in your novel, there's so much truth, is, is misread. And that's I, okay, that's you were fine with that. Yeah, I was just cool. I was just
1: well, because I was just look, as the, the question of the flavor today, God, in the end, look, all of us, if we get lucky, will get if we get extremely lucky or unlucky, we will get a chance to be in the, you know, that sort of corporate capitalist gaze. Yeah? But in some ways, how little does it matter? You know? Because some people get deranged by this and take it very seriously. But look, your work, our work, what we're doing here, is not for the present. That's why this isn't a big deal. I don't give a shit if people like are like, oh, you're the amazing person. <laughs> Who the fuck cares you're not writing for the present? At least as an author, what you're writing for is a future, a group of readers who don't even exist. Your book, your art da- is going to do the real work when nobody knows anything about your biography, when nobody knows who the fuck you are, when they're on to their next flavors of the day. I mean, that, because that's what capitalism is good for, is that they'll forget about you before they remembered that they knew you. You know, It's just going to be a blur. And the real work of literature gets done after everything. You know? It's great that people like this now, that people are like, oh, this is wonderful. But that's not what matters. All of us are working towards audiences that don't exist yet. And that's it. And that's why you're part of a collective argument. The thing is, is that they can. Isolate one person and say you're fantastic, but the real deal is that they're isolating that one person so that they don't have to deal with the fact that that one person is arising out of a collective that's involved in many of these issues. And even if they kind of fucking paralyze you and make you absurd because they've paid too much attention and you've fallen for it, it doesn't change the fact that a collective made you possible. And that collective, because you caught the bullet, continues doing the work. And I think that that's what's the most important thing. Like, who cares if they've turned Toni Morrison into like uh, Oprah Winfrey's dinner date,
3: you know?
1: <laughs> what Toni Morrison made possible, what she made possible at a collective level for that generation that was working, is more important that, than that she's the person, the go-to black person that presidents invite. I mean, that shit is th- wonderful, great, yeah. You know, but the best, guys, it's a guarantee, the best thing about being artists is that you will soon be irrelevant. (laughs) And then your work will begin. You know, because the work begins in that library when nobody knows who the fuck you are and you don't even have a dust cover jacket and some poor little nerd girl or some poor little girl who is interested in something stumbles on this book and says, okay, I don't hate the first line. Yeah? That's the power of literature. That's why literature has been with us so long. That's why it defies all claims of its extinction. You know? And that's why it's worth it. It's nice. If we do it because, again, it's so easy to enjoy any of the fruits of doing it well, when in fact you know that the real judgment of who you are is afterwards. You know, Was there another question? Madame? Mm. It's kind of uh, ironic because I'm writing my own dissertation on play as we speak, and <laughs> I wanted to... Uh, oh, Henry,
0: <laughs> you
1: line them up. I wanted to, to say that I found your book uh, deeply humorous
7: and very playful, and I wanted to share a comment that was made to me by my advisor, Doris Sommer, who uh, teaches Latin American literature, which is what I study, and she basically said that a lot of minority writers as a strategy of play use the strategy of abrazos y rechazos. Uh, advances and rejections, which is that they try to tell the history of their country or the history of a particular piece of land where they come from, uh, as well as any major writer would have done, but they add a particular twist, or they make fun of something that they don't consider the other people got right. For example, Garcilaso Alinka says, well, why is, why is Peru called Peru? And it was a total mistake because mm-hmm. the, the, the Indian could they asked, white people came and they said, what's the name of this country? They, they didn't really know the language. And so uh, he I mean he really didn't understand what they were saying. And so they just thought uh, he just uh, wanted to say, you know my name is so-and-so, and his name was Belu And so they, he said you know, Belu and that was the
3: name of the country. And so, uh, sorry, it's very long. But my
7: question it's is. It's OK. Welcome uh, to MIT. <laughs> no. my, my question is, I, I think that this strategy of uh, about Sort of enticing the reader, but then drawing back and having something in the in, um, in your writing. I can also see that in your book, and I was wondering if you if you wanted to comment on that, if you use that
1: strategy consciously, or what do you think of it? Yeah, but I but I, I wonder if that's such a, a weird innovation. If if that's not just the question that we cover in in any creative writing classes where we talk about um, where we talk about audience. I mean, the thrill of reading is that you're sort of like a weird particle, yeah, that can't seem to resolve its state. At any moment in any given line of any given book, people are sort of jumping between being the person spoken to, the insider, or the eavesdropper, yeah? And that each of these categories, and sometimes you're both simultaneous, each of these categories gives a certain kind of thrill to the reader, as they are in real life, yeah? If I tell you a secret, after this, I'm going to Henry's office and taking his fucking comic books. Yeah, I whisper this to you. And we're boys, so you're like, yeah, you know? (laughs) We don't know you at all. We don't know you at all. Yeah, you overhear me saying that to him. Who gets more of a thrill? In fact, it is hard to say. You know, it is, there's no telling, but both people get a certain kind of thrill. The one person who eavesdrops says, oh, those dudes are thieves, yo. You know, (laughs) you who hear it are like, yo, this dude. And so what ends up happening as a reader is that we're always flitting between these two poles, that sometimes we feel like we're being spoken directly to, and sometimes we feel like we're eavesdropping. So that what you're actually describing sounds just like a standard characteristic of writing and reading, you know? That it's, that what is, when we're drawn in is at the moments that we feel that we're being spoken to. When we're being drawn out is the moment we feel we're eavesdropping, that we're no longer being spoken to and we're overhearing. I don't know if that makes any sense.
7: Right, uh, I was just, I'm just also wondering, you spoke about using all of these different codes for your writing, and, and I personally didn't, uh, didn't get a lot of the illusions but for me, that made the book almost more appealing because there was something even more enigmatic about it. And I was wondering if that was also intended. You know, is there, perhaps the reader is not supposed to get all of it because the reader cannot be totally in the place of the main character because the reader does not share the history of your country. And so maybe that's a little barrier
3: that you put, it, you put between yourself and your audience.
1: Again, I I would argue that there is no barrier. I mean, I think that it is impossible for any one individual to understand any book. The dream of the imperial gaze, the dream of the the imperial I know is that everything becomes transparent. There are no veils. That I can read a book and I understand the text completely. The reality of a text is that no individual can understand it fully. That's why the novel is such a fascinating form. It's too complicated to be understood by one person. Novels are not there to create barriers between themselves and the reader. Just because you're outside, that wasn't there to be an obstacle. Novels are there to create community, because whatever you don't understand, you are propelled to find someone who will explain it to you. I mean, the reason that people who love books get together and talk about them all the time is because one mind can't grasp it. And for me, a novel that is dense, difficult to understand, full with many shadows, mysterious, is actually a source of community. Because you're forced to step outside of what you know and go to someone else and ask, which if we remember is the way that we started being readers in the first place. You know, the first position of a reader is, what does this mean? And as adults, we forget that. You know, we forget that we learned how to read with that simple, constant question, what does this mean? And so I I never see that. I I feel like having a bunch of weird codes that no one understands, I've never thought of that as an obstacle. You know, I've always thought that that, it's an excuse to get nerds who normally wouldn't speak together. You know, I mean, just honestly, you would have died laughing hearing my mother interrogating my nephew about the Fantastic Four. Communities that never would ever spoken to each other. Forced to acknowledge that, yo, yo, we need each other to get through this. You know? I think if it's almost time. What time is it? He's like desperately. I'm like desperate. Just hmm? sort of just about a, a question about It's a good question. I assume like everyone's subjectivity is very different. I assume that everyone has a different technique. Clearly there's a wide range to this. I mean you look at just if you want to talk about athletes, because athletes are really good for artists to think about, yeah, because they make explicit, they encarne, they put in flesh some of the things that are much too abstract, in some ways intellectual. You look at someone like Tiger Woods, that motherfucker's in the zone all the time. You know he has an incredible ability to connect with that space of his where he's just playing. The dude doesn't isn't under any pressure. He's like, <laughs> I win. <laughs> you know, I mean he is. And you could see the people who aren't playing. They're just like, they're not making the connections. They're not bringing online everything you need to do. So we're all very different. One of the things I've discovered for myself, and I do not know how this relates to anyone else, is that it's required an enormous amount of intellectual training what irony, an enormous amount of intellectual training and formalistic understanding to approach that space with any regularity. If I just depend on inspiration to get there, but I've discovered discipline gets me there more often than not, which is crazy. (laughs) You know, because the thing is, is then you have to turn the discipline off. Once you're there, you've got to, Joe, is that a hand, sir? You guys know Joe Haldeman, of course. He's on faculty with us in the writing program. is the author of, among many works, uh, Mars Bound, um, you know, uh, Accidental Time Machine, and of course, the canonical, The Forever War. <laughs> well, as a reader,
3: you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know
0: anything about the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. I am a professor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but you could tell me it's fucking athabasca. And I would swallow it completely. Yeah. You know, I could tell that there was some mythic deep structure to it, but I don't know from the fantastic
1: form. So uh, I think I understood the novel. I, I mm-hmm. certainly enjoyed it. But uh, this is just totally fascinating to me because I know the feeling, just as another writer, I know that you've got to put in a lot of
0: background, you've got a You've got to not tell 98% of what mm-hmm. you know about the fucking novel before, before it's gonna work at all. So I can just see you doing all this thinking and thinking and thinking <coughs> about these four comic book characters or five, and uh, the work comes through, but I don't have to know anything about them exactly.
4: to, uh, to get the
1: novel. Well that's, I mean, but that's it's, well, that, that's, that is the most wondrous part of any of these forms, whether it's a film, You know, these things can be just enjoyed at the most surface level. You know? And there's people who just enjoy stuff at a surface level. Unfortunately, most of us are paid not to do that, yeah? (laughs) You know, the privilege that our relatives have, which is they can just enjoy a novel for what it is. They're like, oh, shit, a car crash. And you're like, ah, yes. This is a Henry Ford critique, you know? (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: So there there seems to be an emerging body of literature we might call fanboy lit, which include people like Michael Chabon, Jonathan Leffin, you mentioned Rick Moody. We extended the comics. There's an army of these autobiographical or semi-autobiographical comics about people's fan obsessions. Mm. The striking feature of them is, what, like you said about the 100 literary novels, is they're all written by white guys. Mm and pretty white, upper-middle-class guys. Hmm. So what strike, struck me reading Oscar Wilde the first time was this seems to fit within <laughs> that genre, and yet <coughs> is written by people who are not or, normally allowed in our culture to be fans, that are not entitled to speak in that geek nerd voice. And so I wondered what your thoughts were about the construction of Oscar Wilde as a, as a Dominican fanboy, and what relation, if any, you feel to the Latham and Shabon Ch- and the others who are trying to do that?
1: Yeah. I think that uh that's a great question Henry. I mean, and it's a it, it's a number of questions um, part of it is that I mean, I I always think every time I go to a convention, despite the amount of brown bodies that one sees if we can use a band dung term, yeah. Uh, what's fascinating is how r- how incredibly like almost almost ancient white, the structure of these conventions are. Male. You know, well, I always assume that means male, but thank you <laughs> for making the, <laughs> making the implicit explicit, yeah? And I, I'm stunned by how in some ways the, you know, when they talk about like white masculinity And uh, they'll talk, they'll say, oh, white masculinity has found these certain spaces to claim for themselves. It's fascinating the way fanboy culture has become like the new militia. You know, it's a place where, and anyone who's ever been on a fanboy talkback, the level of racism and sexism is unspeakable. I mean, honestly, someone could just print a 500-page book on what fanboys say. You know, it's unbelievable. And I think that what's interesting about, Again, I I was kind of so aware of the way that, uh, uh, sort of aware of Lethem and aware of Chabon and realizing that I wanted to do the thing as farthest from them as possible because Leitham and Chabon could write a novel that features one comic book character in one page and all the fanboys jump up and down. But Minister Faust writes a novel about being a fanboy and he's African American, you know, he's African Canadian, and there's an utter silence from the fanboy community. I mean, in some ways like the white supremacy factor is really in effect, yeah? And I thought what was interesting about these kind of guys, who I would argue are kind of carpetbaggers, yeah, in some ways. Chabon, most certainly. I'm like, what the fuck is Chabon doing, talking science fiction to the LA Times? There's not 500 more qualified science fucking fiction writers than him who can talk to him, but he's he's the guy. He's like the black guy everybody gets along with, the polite black guy. Come and talk to us about blackness, you know. I mean, it's the same way. He's like the polite, oh, we can talk to you because you've got your creds in the real world. I, I was obsessed with this idea that instead of making um, you know, sort of, instead of using the traditional techniques of literature to create books about a comic book hero, yeah? What I was thinking is that I would literally take the, just chop up the language and the codes of these genres and make that the literature. And I thought that was very, very different. I thought that that was a very different approach. And I really was interested in trying to do something that kind of stood apart, because, again, being a white dude and writing genre is a fascinating thing. But being a person of color who's already a genre <laughs> and writing genre, it's like some really f- weird form of recursive. You know, it's like really, really bizarre because anything I write is always considered genre. I write a book of literary fiction, and they're like, oh, a Dominican. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's genre already. But I mean, I'm not answering the question as well as I could because my brain is starting to collapse. Sir, uh, well, save me. <laughs> um, or don't
5: I think that the, 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 This book I guess you just said It was literary fiction and, But then all this talk is, is bringing up the references And my brother read it And my brother gave me uh, The Watchman for my birthday, for my last birthday. <laughs> he, he loves you And he yeah. <laughs> and he, uh, he got uh, I think Close to 100% of the references um, And he and I are always like, Giving each other books like this So and I've heard you mention Faulkner too, and I was wondering if, if there is like some literary fiction that you wouldn't put into the category that you put like Updike, who I mean I don't really read Updike myself either, but, <laughs> but uh but I mean who you wouldn't put into that that place that you said that, that it's not a good thing that the the white writers in Maine uh, that <laughs> is there literary fiction that you would consider I guess to get the marginalia that, that you say that science fiction and fantasy and things are getting in, in our culture. Um, and I guess, and also, if you would consider your book a part of that.
1: You never know. You know, it's one of those strange, it's an incredibly good question, but what it reveals is how difficult it is to slice these issues, yeah? Because and it's also hard in the present while people are writing and while you're really close to the material to understand the kind of work that's going on. It could be in the future that Updike turns out to be you know, the one who was right all along and his, uh, his insights, but for me it's less sort of uh, figuring out like you, like pointing out who's doing what, then sort of understanding the traditions in which we're all working with and how there's all sorts of received and inherited silences that come out of these traditions. And that often we, we swallow a whole lot of them. And that there's people who, because of that, want to write certain things. You know, And so I think my, my question is it's really hard to put the finger on anything. You can often put fingers <coughs> on the most extreme examples. You know, Like the Updike's an easy one and Faulkner's an easy one. Where other people fall in between is very difficult. And again, it's, it's hard for one person to judge. I think that these kind of things require a, a, a collective critical approach to understand how they're working. I think the idea is just to keep asking questions about this, because eventually we'll come to some sort of perhaps not useful, but at least, you know, illuminating consensus.
5: Did you ever try to write just 100 uh, percent science fiction?
1: No, I'm terrible at it. Yeah, thank you. No. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm, I think if I could, it would be a, I'd probably be a happier man. Yeah. Madame.
3: No, go
6: ahead. As much as it
1: needs to be read here and it's, I can be sure that it's in San Domingo. Yeah, somebody has the book in Spanish right here. It's already there? Yeah. No, it salió en San Domingo la semana it, pasada. Wow. Again,
6: okay. and so, how did you feel <laughs> the, I mean the Spanish was
1: just delicious. Well, <laughs> yeah. but again, that's like kind of the term like magic realism. When I ask somebody to find what they mean by spanglish, that's when they start going. (laughs) There's a word for it, though. The what?
3: It's It's
1: the code switching. Code switching is easy to do. You just find a a new set of codes to switch. You know? Do you know what I mean? Like, what we just did is find a bunch of Spanish words that we could code switch into English Mm -hmm. (laughs) that sounded great, that sounded organic, that sounded part of the game. And that's it, works. You know, Because code switching is such a normal part. The best way to answer this question, though, is when the book came out in the Dominican Republic last week, I was sitting there with my family, and um, my uncles were watching a Steven Seagal movie that had been translated. You know, so Steven Seagal was speaking in Spanish, and my uncles are watching this shit, and they're like, well, I don't know how the translation, how anybody would want to read a book that's translated, and they're like, watching the TV. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that... One of the things is, because of sort of the, the global nature of late modern capital, is that we're all used to this stuff now. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps in the United States, not so much, but in the rest of the world. I mean, mm-hmm. in Santo Domingo, we spent 90% of the time dealing with translated texts. Mm-hmm. Right. So no one got any problems with it. I, I actually enjoyed the, the process.
3: Right, that's more of what I was.
4: So, so, what did you tell the translator? I had the same question. like, how, what did you tell the translator? If he had something in mind See. when you wrote how you use Spanish, so did you think about
3: those things when
1: you told the translator, okay, this is my strategy, or what's my strategy? Fuck, this thing will not die. Um, what it is is that the the translators, as you might know, translators are incredibly gifted, super-skilled professionals. And you rarely have to tell them this crap. You know? In fact, they tend to come up with solutions themselves that are very useful. Their track records tend to be speak for themselves. You know? And we had a blast because, again, she was able to identify what would be a great set of things to, to change and that would sound really good in And each of the translators, because there was a translator for Spanish in Spain, there was a translator for Spanish in Dominican Republic, and for Spanish for the rest of Latin America. And what was fascinating was how each one took a different set of codes In Spain, it was was just a laugh riot. Yes, it was. (laughs) Sorry. I
4: was impressed by the translation of the Spanish translator. It was, by far, amazing, that's
1: all I have to say. It was amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, translators, I think people forget, man. Translators are fucking like, it's the same way like being a reader. As a reader, you're not honored honored enough. Translators are not honored enough. They're artists and professionals and they get paid jack And they're like fucking alchemists. (laughs) Things that they do are remarkable. And that's why a bad translator is so lamentable. (laughs) You know, sir. And then we're almost done.
5: Have you contemplated a different medium? Oscar Wilde, the
1: video game, Oscar Wilde, the film? Or is it just too far up here? No, no, no. I keep, I'm always, uh, again, I wonder, Joe, if this—I I always get asked to do script doctoring—and always is a way of saying like once a year. Yeah, people would be like, "Yo, we got an incredibly bad script. Make it less incredibly bad," you know? But the th- problem is the reason why, for example, I don't know much about video games. Um, I mean, I play them. I just mean I don't know like anything about production side. Uh, but what I've discovered is I don't work fast enough for Hollywood. Yeah. Um, they're, always, they're always just giving me a kill check after about a month. They're like, here you go. Thanks, asshole. You know, you don't, you don't write fast enough, man. And so it's gotten around. I had three rewrites. I was able to buy new shoes. I kid you not. They pay you so little. And after the third rewrite, I think I took so long that I haven't heard from them. You know? So, I mean, it would be a dream. They're going to try to make this into a movie, this novel. God bless them. I mean, I'm not going to have nothing to do with it. Um, They already told me, straight up, they're like, you work way too slow. So, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Okay, one last question and we're done. The last question could always be incredibly lame (laughs) and could be an ad hominem attack.
3: (laughs) (laughs) She was like, "Oh, it should have been me.
0: Sort of uh, reading of things was the the, the training session
1: between Junior and Oscar was that like conversion to the dark side? God, you know it's so funny because like I said, um, part of that just came. I mean, it's such a good question. I didn't think of that. Part of that came from when I mean it was just that's just an autobiographical detail. When when I was in college, I was like addicted to steroids. I was like this muscle-bound, just animal. Yeah, I used to work in a steel mill. I was addicted to steroids. All I did was lift weights. I moved into my dorm room, the arts dorm room, with like a weight bench and my weight bar. You know, that was my thing. <laughs> and I had a roommate who was, you know, a typical flabby New Jerseyan. And he wanted to work out with me. And I remember one semester we worked out together before like he gave up. And it was just the comments that people would say on the street to us were so funny that I just wanted to use that. So it, it had no larger reference. You know, it was just that there's no one crueler on the earth than Americans to people who are out trying to like get into shape. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know. So remember, jog alone. (laughs) Uh, Guys, um, again, I apologize for largely the incoherence of this. This is more of a, you know, a scattershot attempt to to talk about some of the ideas that went into the creation of this and certainly some of my own preoccupations. I wanted to finish just by naming a couple of texts that I've already given you two of these, but this is a very useful text as well. Um, uh, It's from Wesley and it's, you know, these titles. Guys, if any of you end up writing a dissertation you turn into a book, I beg you, don't do this. The title is Colonialism and the Emergence of Science Fiction. A really, really good book with just, just, I mean, give me a break. Could have done anything, you know? And the author is Ryder, with an E after the I. Yeah, Ryder, R-I-E-D-E-R. Yeah, and these are good, these are good very good books to, to sort of begin to address these things. The other book that I couldn't find, uh, I couldn't bring to you is uh, a book that I had talked with my other classes about a few years ago which is awesome on the ideas of um, extermination and extinction and how they basically are underpin what we call modern civilization, contemporary civilization. It's Sven Linkvist's book. Does anybody know that book? Does anybody know Linkvist's book? It's really remarkable. It's called Exterminate All the Brutes. And I, I recommend it. It's only like 94 pages yeah so you get a tremendous bang for your buck okay guys thank you so much have a good day